Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5 and verse number 1, Paul writes, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace, wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only so, but we glory in tribulations also, knowing that tribulation worketh patience, and patience experience, and experience hope. And hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. Some time ago, I read in a a booklet that was talking about, speaking about, and recording uh, things concerning war, this account. It said that uh, when World War I broke out, the war ministry in London dispatched a coded message to one of the British outposts in one of the inaccessible areas of Africa. The message simply read the following, War declared, arrest all enemy aliens in your district. The war ministry that, uh, that uh, received that message read it and then began to proceed to obey it. And then they sent back a word to the war minister there in London. They received a prompt reply and it read, quote, Have arrested ten Germans, six Belgians, four Frenchmen, two Italians, three Austrians, and an American. Please advise immediately who we're at war with. And let me tell you something. That uh, speaks volumes about the text that's before us today, and I'll tell you why. I'm personally convinced that one of the people, I guess you might say, was the central truth that Paul, when he writes in the book of Romans, one of the central truths that uh, is recorded in God's Word is what that piece of information uh, sort of sheds light on, the issue of who we're at war with. And the fact is, this central truth is the basis for the very first effect that you enjoy in your salvation. It's recorded in chapter 5. The fact is, the central truth is this. And it's important that you understand this by virtue that I believe understanding everything else in the Bible is predicated on this fact. And that is the natural, the normal relationship with God that we enter this world with is not one of peace but one of war. It's not one of friendship, but one of enmity. So the fact of the matter is that the pagan world has it all wrong. When you go out into the public and when you turn on the media, the television and magazines and whatever, and people have all these glowing statements about God, they have it all wrong. They've misconstrued the whole central truth of what the Bible holds up clearly. And that is that God and man are not friends. God and man, and I'm talking about unregenerate man, I'm talking about unjustified man, man who is not saved, man who just comes into this world by a simple birth and then begins to live his life and begins to act as if he can make his own way, do his own thing, and end up in the right place. That just is not going to happen. And the reason it's not going to happen is because we start off on the wrong premise. Let me call your attention in Romans 5. This is jumping way ahead. It'll take us a few weeks to get there. But look at chapter 5 and verse number 10. This is one of the great verses in the book of Romans. Chapter 5, verse 10. For if when we were enemies... He's talking to Christian people now here in Romans chapter 5 because he's talking about verse 1, being justified by faith. So verse 10, he says, when we were enemies... And the fact of the matter is there was a place and there was a point, there was a time when Paul, the people to whom Paul was writing, that they were enemies of God. And I can tell you when that was. The moment they were born into this world as poor law sinners, they were enemies of God. The fact of the matter is every man, woman, boy and girl born into this world is born an enemy of God. Don't you let this world soft soap you into this idea that God loves everybody in the world and everybody is just hunky-dory with him and everything's all right and everything's just wonderful and all right. No, no, no. When the Bible says God so loved the world, it does not mean God loved them in their condition. God loves people by virtue of the fact of what he's going to do for them expresses that love for them. It's not that, oh, yes, this guy who drinks himself drunk and gets cirrhosis of the liver and dies in an alley in Indianapolis is something I really love. That's not what he's saying. I love that individual because I know what I can 
can do for him and change his life forever and sanctify him by the grace of God after I've saved him and justified him by faith, I can make something of this guy that will honor me and help him live a fulfilled life. That's what it's saying. So this ideal of loving people in their sin and God therefore loves man's sin is ridiculous and yet it's catching on. I heard a program the other night. My wife and I were, I was, my wife was not, channel surfing. As I went across this, there was a lady there interviewing a man and a woman. And this woman asked this woman, by the way, the woman was uh, uh, Barbara, no, it wasn't, it was um, the lady on NBC who retired, uh, uh, Jane Pauley. Jane Pauley asked this lady, Liza Manella, his name. But anyway, that's neither here. That's a whole different message. But anyway, Liza Manelli, and she said to her, she said, my mother's in heaven. Liza Manelli said that. Jane Polly was so shocked. She said, your mother is in heaven? Did anybody hear that interview? She said, your mother's in heaven? You know why she asked that question? Because Julie Garland is Liza Manelli's mother, and Julie Garland died of a drug overdose because she was an alcoholic and a drug addict. It shocked Jane Polly, and I don't know what religious affiliation, if any, Jane Polly has, but she was so shocked, she said, your mother is in heaven? You see, the concept in this world is that, that, uh, that God goes around begging people to accept him. Oh, please accept me. I'm God, but I want you to... Uh, nothing could be further from the truth. Man is at odds with God, and God is the party that's been offended. Don't you ever forget that. It's not people on this end of saying down here, well, I offended God. I don't like you and I'm not going to have anything to do with you. Man's not mad at God. God is mad, if you please, in that context at man. There's a passage. It's in Isaiah 44, 48 and verse 22. And it says, there is no peace, saith the Lord, unto the wicked. Some translate the verse with this ideal, and I don't think it does any injustice to the Hebrew text. No peace, saith the Lord, is extended to any that are wicked. You live a wicked life. There's no peace extended to you from God. God's not at peace with you. And the people in this world this morning who are living their life their way are at odds with God. But it's God who's been offended. And God is not going to sit down and just let these people walk into heaven's gate because, quote, God loves the world so much. That's not what the Bible is teaching, and that's not what it says. Paul wrote in Colossians chapter number 1, verse 20, he says, And having made peace through the blood of his cross, by him to reconcile all things unto himself, by him, I say, whether they be the things in earth or the things in heaven, and you that were sometimes alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled. My friend, there was a point and a place where everybody in this room was an enemy of God, and that was from God's perspective. We were alienated from God. We were enemies with Him, though most people would deny that they're God's enemy. Most people in the city of Franklin would deny that we're enemies of God. God's not my enemy. I like God. I, I think God's a good guy. I think He's a good fellow. That's not the point. God, on His end, is offended, and God looks at man as His enemy. And that's why the Bible uses, and Paul especially, uses this ideal of us being enemies before. We were at odds before. We were alienated from God. We had no relationship whatsoever. Man is not the offended party. It is God who has been offended. And this society in which you and I live has so perverted and so twisted this thing, it's really getting ridiculous. In a broadcast just two weeks ago, there was a man on a religious program spoke about the fact of how God seeks and searches for mankind. In the context of that, he made God to show up some, like some kind of beggar that had a disease that nobody wanted to touch. And he made man the one in the position to deny or reject or, or refuse God's overtures of encouragement of grace. And this man painted the whole picture of the man being such a wonderful creature and God going around begging people to bow to him. Let me tell you, my friend, that's not the Bible truth at all. That's a misconception and a misinterpretation by the pagan mind. Let me tell you what the Bible really sets up. Here's a passage in James chapter 4 and verse 4. Though written to Christian people, it reflects upon what happened and what was prior to our salvation. He calls these Christians, ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. And when you were born into this world, I'll assure you what Isaiah said was true of you. All we like sheep have gone astray, and we've every one turned to his own way, and the Lord hath laid upon him the iniquity of us all. 
The fact is, when we came into this world, we went after what we wanted, and we became friends of this world. This world met all those things in our life that were a pleasure and a blessing, but had no eternal value. And so what happens if you stick with that kind of menu for your life, then you're not going to end up in heaven, I assure you, by virtue that you're going to keep depending on this world to meet those needs. Paul wrote to Timothy these words, 1 Timothy 2, 5, For there is one God, there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. One mediator between God and man. Why would you need a mediator if God and man were on the same page? You wouldn't. You need a mediator when the two sides are far apart. And Jesus Christ was the mediator who took the part and the place in the middle, and he still works as a mediator. And I'll tell you how. For us to stay on a right relationship with God, the Lord Jesus Christ is there to encourage an ongoing, deepening relationship, even at this hour, for every believer. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, making intercession for those who believe. That's part of his high priestly work, and that's part of his responsibility that he took on as the Son who come to this earth, die for man's sins, and then go back to heaven and work as it were our high priest. There's another aspect of this that shows that we're enemies of God, and that is the fact the Bible is so clear that God talks about his enemies that he has reserved for them his wrath. His wrath. Now, I assure you, wrath is not something you do to your family and you do to your friends. Look at Romans chapter 1 and verse number 18. Here's what Paul wrote back there. Romans 1 and verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. He wrote this in 1 Corinthians 16, 22. He said, If any man love not the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be anathema maranatha. Let him be accursed. The ideal is that the person who does not love the Lord Jesus Christ, which people who are born into this world do not do of natural birth, they do not love the Lord Jesus Christ. Those people are accursed of God. The scripture is clear in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse number 6. Let no man deceive you with vain words or empty words, for because of these things cometh the wrath of God upon the children of disobedience. What things? The things that he just listed in chapter 5 of Ephesians, and he was exhorting the Christians not to participate in. He said, you Christians, stay away from all this stuff, because if you are involved in that, if that's the practice of your life, then you have no relationship to the Father, and the wrath of God comes upon people who have no relationship with the Father. There's another passage. It's in Psalms 7, in verse 11, where it says that God simply judgeth the righteous, and God is angry with the wicked every day. My friend, the Bible is crystal clear on this point. And that is this, you do not come into this world being a chum buddy with God Almighty. You come into this world at odds with God, and the at odds position is from His side, not yours. You may think everything is hunky-dory, as by the way the world does. I don't know about the little girl who was, was kidnapped and killed in Sarasota, Florida. I don't know about that. She was 11 years of age, I understand. That's old enough to know right from wrong. It's interesting to me that no matter who dies and no matter in what circumstance they die, the immediate assumption in this country is you're going to heaven. And immediately on the broadcast they said, oh, she's in heaven. She's in a much better place. I pray she is. But she didn't get there because she's just an 11-year-old girl in an innocent kind of vicious world in which she lived. If she got there, she got there the same way that everybody else in the world got there, by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is an, a wrong assumption for us to believe that everybody that dies is just going to get to heaven. And now she may be a Christian. She may have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ as her Savior. And I hope she had. I pray she has. But I'm telling you there is this thing that, that simply intoxicates the American people into believing that everybody is right with God from the moment they're out of diapers. And that's not true. We come into this world born sinners. And sinners sin. And because we sin, sin is an offense to the holy God of heaven. And man and God will never be in a right relationship until that birth sin, being born a sinner, is dealt with and overpowered and overshadowed by the good grace of God. Therefore, my friend, the Bible is crystal clear on this thing. The central truth of the Bible is that God is an enemy of mankind. 
And that's what makes this chapter and this passage so exciting. Several things. First off, to begin with, it's been said that Romans is a book of God's logic. The point they make about that is because it has four very clear words that are used, I guess is the best way to put it, words that explain a basis. That is to say, the word therefore is therefore a reason. And let me show you two or three of them. Look at Romans chapter 3 and verse number 20. Romans chapter 3 and verse number 20 simply says, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. Romans 3:20, the therefore of condemnation. These people are condemned because they have not come by faith, but they're trying to come by keeping the law. That's a, that's a therefore of condemnation. Then you come to Romans chapter 5 and verse 1. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the therefore of justification. Then if you'll go over to chapter number 8, Romans chapter 8 and verse number 1. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus who walk not after the flesh but after the Spirit. Romans 8, 1, you have the therefore of no condemnation. And then chapter number 12, you have that great passage. Uh, therefore, stated lust, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. There's the therefore of dedication. So you have the therefore of condemnation, the therefore of justification, the therefore of no condemnation, and the therefore of dedication. Those based upon truth that are written prior. So in each of those cases, before Romans 3 and verse 20, the therefore is there based on what he'd already said in chapter 3. When you come to chapter 5, the therefore in verse 1 is built on what we heard in chapter 4. When you come to chapter 8, the therefore is there to explain what he studied in chapter 7. And the same goes for chapter 12. The point made about it is it means it comes to a logical conclusion. It's not just spiritual truth. It has simple, reasonable logic to it. And the Apostle Paul was called God's logic's preacher, his preacher, the apostle, the man who spoke with logic. And we call it God's logic. Now, the second of those two therefores are here in our text. Romans chapter 5, verse 1. And what chapter 5 really is, is a, what I call an expanded edition of the message that he's already preached on justification. But the chapter divides thus. I believe the first 11 verses are, I believe, expressing and dealing with the benefits of justification. That is, the, both presently and long term. And I would tell you this right up front as I said it in the Wednesday night service, and I'm convinced of this. Romans 5, I believe without a doubt, is the most definitive text in the whole of the Bible on eternal security. If you want to have a, an absolute assurance of your salvation... And if you have any question about it, you need to come to Romans chapter 5. When you understand Romans 5, you will never doubt your salvation again if you believe God. Romans 5 is the clearest, most definitive statement concerning salvation in the whole of the Bible. And anybody who has a question about being saved and lost ought to get to know Romans chapter 5. But in chapter 5, verse 1 through 11, that takes care of the benefits. Verses 12 through 21 will deal with the background and the basis for justification. And we'll deal with that as a sort of a springboard as we go through this chapter. It's, a, it's not possible to emphasize too much the importance of the doctrine of justification by faith in the life of every believer. If anybody in this room has any, any, what I call any doubts about Bible doctrine, it is not justification by faith that you ought to have any about. You ought to know that one inside and out because it has a greater impact on the success of your Christian life probably than any other teaching in the whole of the Bible. So for that reason, I'd urge you get to know Romans 5 and get to know it well. A couple of things came to mind when I read and thought through this chapter. First off, you will never entertain the ideal that one can be saved and then lose that salvation and be lost again if you fully understand justification by faith. You will never agree with those who teach we cannot have full assurance of our salvation and that our entering heaven depends on whether we die in a state of grace. You'll never agree to that kind of teaching if you understand justification by faith. We are secure in our salvation because we are no longer at war with God. 
When you understand the premise and the basis of all that, then you'll never doubt your salvation. And it will come clearly from the basis of Scripture that's set forth here. First off, let me give you an overview. And I didn't write these out originally. I heard these many years ago. But I think they're well worth your making note of in your study and mine of the book of Romans. And that is this. It's pointed out that there are seven solid statements regarding our justification before God and before men that are written in the Scriptures. I call your attention to them now. Look, if you would, at Romans chapter 8 and verse number 33. Romans 8 and verse number 33. The first of these is justification or being justified by God. That's important. Justification by faith, but it's by God. And this Romans chapter 8 and verse number 33 says succinctly, Who shall lay anything to the charge of God, God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Romans 8, 33, justified by God. Look back over to Romans chapter 3 and look at verse number 24. Romans 3, 24. For all, have, uh, 24 says, being justified freely by His grace. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Not only are we justified by God, we're justified by grace. Look at chapter 5 where we'll be studying today and look at verse number 9. Romans chapter 5 verse number 9. Much more than being now justified by His blood, we shall be saved from the wrath through Him. Look at back at chapter number 4 and verse number 25. Romans chapter 4, verse 25, last verse of chapter 4 before you enter into chapter 5. Who was delivered for our offenses and was raised again for our justification. Justified by God, Romans 8.33. Justified by grace, Romans 3.24. Justified by His blood, Romans 5.9. Justified by His resurrection, Romans 4.25. And then chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Justified by faith. Now, those are all before God. That means all those justifications take place before God. Justified by God, justified by His grace, justified by His blood, justified by His resurrection, and justified by faith. That's all before God. But there are two of the seven that relate to being justified before men. Let me read them. The first one is in Matthew chapter 12 and verse number 37. By the words, thy words, thou shalt be justified, and by thy words shalt thou be condemned. The phrase, by thy words, thou shalt be justified, is in context of chapter 12 of Matthew speaking about the business of, of your life matching up with your words. You know, as a man walks, does he talk? Or if he talks, does he walk? It's the ideal of you say you're a Christian, then people are going to listen to your words. They're going to see if, you're, if your life and your lips match up. And they're going to determine, they're going to decide whether you're saved by the grace of God and justified by faith whether or not your lip service matches your life service. So that's what Matthew chapter 12 says. James 2.22. James 2.22 is before the world, and it is justified by works. James 2.21 says, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he had offered Isaac his son upon the altar? James chapter number 2 verse 21 obviously is dealing with works as a testimony of salvation before men not before God. Why would we know that? You'd know that from the very text it just gave. James chapter 2, verse 21. Ask yourself a simple question. Where was Abraham justified as far as chronologically? Genesis chapter 15, verse number 5. Well, when did he offer his son? Many chapters later he offered his son. He was justified by faith over here before God, but people were not so necessarily sure that it was a real and genuine thing until the day that he walked up there and laid his son on the altar and said, I'll give him to God. God wants him, I'll kill him. Now, that's justification by works. That says before mankind, they could see that. They can't see faith in the heart. They can't see salvation. You've got to do something with the salvation that is hidden. And salvation may be deep inside your heart, and you know beyond a shadow of a doubt, if you died this moment, you have placed your faith in the finished work of Christ, and you'd go to heaven. And you're sure of that. There's one problem with the world with that. They can't see that. They can't see that. They hear a lot of people say, oh, I'm going to heaven. I heard Liza Minnelli say her mother went to heaven, who's a drug addict and a dopehead and a drunk. 
The question is, how do I know she was saved? There's no way I can unless her works testify to that. And that's what James chapter 2, verse number 22 is saying. That by his works he was justified in the sight of men, men and women, boys and girls. Now back to our text of Romans 5 and let's dig into the text. Romans 5 verse 1, Therefore being justified by faith we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. First thing to note is the wording in verse 1. Being justified. That refers to a, a time of action that took place in the past. Being justified. And in the Greek, the, the voice is passive. It's, uh, in this case, passive from the sense that means that the, the subject that's being talked about received and did not initiate any of the action that is explained in the text. That means in simple layman's language, sometime in the past we were justified by God without any help or without any effort on our part. That's what it means. Sometime back there, God did a work of grace in my life of which I had absolutely nothing to do with. He spoke to my heart. He convicted me of my sin. And right then and there, I realized I was a sinner. I needed a Savior. And I embraced the gospel. And I was born again. Being justified. And that's what it means. And so the issue on the table would be, and the question for you would be, has there been a time back there somewhere where you realized you were a sinner and you believed on the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior? Has there been a place that's marked in your Bible somewhere where it said on a certain day, in a certain time, in a certain place, I bowed my head in repentance and sin and trusted the Lord Jesus Christ as my Savior? Has there been such a place? Paul talks about it in verse number 1 as being a fact with these people to whom he writes. Therefore, being justified. Since there is a place back there somewhere that you believed on the Lord Jesus Christ when He made Himself known to you, the following is true. And the very first benefit of justification is this. Being justified by faith, we have. You ought to embrace that. This is something you have. It's not something you're going to get. It's not something you had lost. This is something that we have. Since I've been justified by faith, I have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's important for you to understand you did nothing to get it. It is what He did for us and to us that provides this peace of God. You see, not the peace of God, but the peace with God. There's a difference. In the Bible, it relates to having the peace of God. Uh, when someone goes through a challenge or an experience, sometimes they'll say, boy, I really had the peace of God when I went through that. Peace of God grows out of peace with God. Nobody is going to have peace of God who does not first have peace with God. And nobody has peace with God apart from justifying faith. When you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, you receive the peace of God. It's something you have as a present momentary possession. But the peace of God comes on afterward as you face circumstances. And as you come to more and more assurance of your peace with God, the peace of God grows in your life as you face circumstances. And Romans chapter 5 will prove that. Because there's a, there's a benefit of salvation in this text and, so to speak, an evidence of salvation in this text that there'll be people in this room who will say, What? You kidding me? I don't know that I have that. And yet that's a proof of salvation. It's what it says. And we won't skirt it when we face it. We'll deal with it. But for the moment, the issue on the table is we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. It is the peace with God, not a peace of God. Also, it's, under, it's important for you to understand that this peace that he's speaking about is not a, a feeling of peace. Do you hear me? It's not a feeling of peace. It's a state of peace. And that's crucial to this Bible doctrine. You've entered into a state of peace, and that state of peace is that from God's side, He is no longer your enemy. He never looks at you as an enemy again once you have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ by simple faith, by His grace. He doesn't look at you as an enemy anymore. He is not at enmity with you. He's not at odds with you anymore. It's now a peace relationship, but it's not a feeling I have. You know why? I could lose that. I could get up on Monday morning and if my voice is the way it is now, I won't feel too saved. And I could say to myself, I tell you what, I don't feel that I'm at peace with God. 
Why? My feelings would change. Come to church on Sunday, being around you and being in the music and hearing people give encouraging words and answers to prayer. That's a great, that's a euphoric feeling that we come here. And I'm excited when I hear people and I thrill to that. But my salvation does not depend on what I hear from you. My salvation is anchored in what God said and what Christ did. And in that, I am absolutely at peace. And it is not a feeling. It is a state to which I enter into. And consequently, that's where some folks get off the boat. They think it's a feeling and they lose the feeling and therefore they think they've lost the peace. We who were at odds with God, at war with Him, and His enemy are now at peace with God. And by the way, the very fact that we can have peace with God now testifies that at some point we were at odds with Him. What would, what would it mean to say we're, we have the peace of God now? Or are we at peace with God now? Why would it say that if, in, in fact, there wasn't a time when we were at war, when we were enemies? It wouldn't make any sense. And the obvious opposite of peace is war. So this morning in this auditorium, you sit here either at war with God, and it's God at war with you from the same point he's your enemy, you're his enemy, or it is that you and God are at peace with each other. And I repeat, if you're at peace with God, it is not because of what you did but what Christ did for you. Turn, if you would, quickly to Ephesians chapter number 2. Ephesians chapter number 2, and look, if you would, at verse number 13. Ephesians 2, verse number 13. Ephesians 2, 13 simply says, But now, and you ought to note the, the time words in the Scripture, But now, but not then, but now, in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. You were at one time on one side of the fence and God was on the other at a point in the past at some time back there. Jesus who at some times were far off and you and he were at odds, same as with the Father, now are made nigh by the blood of Christ for he is our peace. That's an important statement. He is our peace who hath made both one and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us verse 15 having abolished in his flesh the intimacy even the law of commandments contained in ordinances for to make in himself of twain one new man so making peace and that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross having slain the enmity thereby and finally verse 17 and came and preached peace to you which were afar off and to them that were nigh the fact of the matter is years ago I heard a uh, man talk to a man who was dying a pastor talked to a man who was dying and as we were um, in the room and we were exchanging statements this Man, this pastor asked this man a question, which when I heard it, I, I never, I really was thinking differently at the moment about this man, his life, his family, preparation for death and his funeral and all that. I really let the question go right over my head. But this pastor asked this man these words. He said, have you made peace with God? When I heard that, I didn't think at that moment anything about it. But as I was leaving and I got away from there, I began to think about it. That's not the right question. That's not the right question. Peace is not made by us. Nobody in this room has ever made peace with God. You couldn't make peace with God if your life depended on it, and it would. Not at all. There's nothing in you you could offer Him that would pacify and satisfy an offended God. There's nothing. So there's nothing that we could say, have you made peace with God? There's nothing I can do to make peace with God. And that's why, again, this thing about being eternally secure comes out of this text by this virtue. It's not what I did. It's what Christ did for me and handed over to me a right relationship with the Father. I didn't do anything to get it, and I can't do anything to lose it. Because I'm not the one who got it in the first place. It was given to me in Christ. Salvation is by grace through faith. And it is a gift of God. The peace with God is a gift that's been provided by the Lord Jesus Christ. Years ago, I read a magazine article and it was giving old obituaries and newspapers in the South. 
And what was interesting in this, every single one of these newspaper obituaries and notices of death started out the same way. Here's what they said. Having made his or her peace with God, so-and-so entered into his glory at such-and-such such a time and such-and-such a such place. The obituary in the local newspaper assumed everybody who died had made peace with God and everybody who died in that community was going to heaven. Every single one of them was that way. Sadly, many people die having never accepted peace with God. And that's what the question should be. When you find a dying person, you ought not say, have you made peace with God? You ought to say, by the way, Christ made peace with God for you. Have you accepted that peace? Have you believed on the Lord Jesus Christ as the one who paid the ransom so you could be saved and know the Father? Have you done that? It's not, have you made peace with God? That guy ought to raise up off a dying bed and said, what do you want me to do, bud? Tell me, what can a man who has nothing give a God who has everything and created that? What am I going to do to pacify such a God? Uh, I thought about it later, you know, that's the silliest question I guess a person could ever ask. Have you made peace with God? No, the question is not, have you made peace with God? The question on the table is, have you accepted the peace with God that Christ provided in himself? I... Uh, Remind you that we have peace with God the moment that we're justified by faith. Understand this too. You cannot grow. You cannot grow. You cannot grow into justification. It's not something you grow into. You will not become more and more justified as you grow in your Christian life. It is not a continual process. It happened suddenly, instantly, the moment that you believed on the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. When our Lord died on the cross, the prophet Isaiah, forecasting and prophesying that to happen, wrote in Isaiah chapter number 53 in verse 5 these words. He said, But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities, and the chastisement of our peace. The chastisement of our peace. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes we're healed. The fact is that peace is a gift. It is not earned. It is not deserved. The peace with God is a state into which we enter by placing faith in Jesus Christ. Augustine, who I don't quote often and read seldom, but his one famous quote that I do appreciate is this. Augustine said, You made us for yourself, and our hearts find no peace until they rest in you. This morning, the issue on the table is whether or not you have peace with God that uh, Jesus Christ provided. Have you believed in simple childlike faith about Jesus Christ dying on the cross for you as a sinner and believing Him and trusting Him to provide that rightness between you and the Heavenly Father? That's what's on the table. There's one other truth before we close, and we are closing. Christ not only made peace with God the Father for us, but He maintains it. He maintains it. And I say that on the basis of 1 John 1, 7. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanseth us from all sins. That word keeps on cleansing. When you sin, the reason that you do not get back on God's enemy list is because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross in the beginning and what Jesus Christ continues to do at the right hand of the Father. He keeps on cleansing us of our sin. And that's a matter that is continuous, perpetual, and ongoing. And therefore, I can maintain or have maintained for me this peace with God that I had nothing in the first place to, uh, to be saved with and get. It's at that point, my friend, that it becomes impossible to believe that you can be saved and lost again without believing Jesus Christ was a joke. 
If he wasn't a joke, if he died on the cross legitimately and he shed his blood to atone for our sin and by so doing he was a ransom between us and the Father and indeed he satisfied, pacified the demands of the Father and by his stripes we are healed and then he also then bids our case before the Father on an ongoing basis cleansing us from all sin, then Jesus Christ is, it is on his shoulders that your salvation and mine rests as being eternally secure. Not on yours and not on my shoulder. He did it and he keeps doing it to make sure that there is no way out of the salvation he provided when he provided the peace with God that sustains man. Therefore, as we close, three things. One, the Christian life starts with salvation, justification by faith, but that is only the beginning. The question for you and me, when did it begin for us? Think for a moment, when was it that you believed on the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior? When was it you said, Lord, I know I'm a sinner, and I know if I died at this moment, I would spend eternity in a devil's hell. Right here, right now, I believe your gospel, and I trust you as my only Savior. Have you ever done that? Is there a date marked somewhere that you can reflect upon and say, right there, I remember it. I remember it succinctly that at that time I trusted Christ, believed on Him, and I know I'm saved. The Bible declares there has to be a place somewhere where you did that, having been justified or being justified. The second thing to consider is this, peace with God, which is a first benefit of justification by faith, and that's important for you to get. It's the first benefit of justification by faith. You're at peace with God. You and God are at peace now. And all the other benefits will flow from that, and even in this text will show that. The first is God and I are at peace. What comes next? All these other things. So justification by faith is a gift of God through our Lord Jesus Christ. What's important to know about that is that most of the world is searching for peace. Most of the world is out there getting drunk, trading partners on every hour, they're doing all the things the world thinks will provide the hole that's empty in their heart with something substantive enough to make life worth living. What they're missing is the relationship between themselves and the Lord Jesus Christ. Nothing in this world can fill the hole of emptiness in the heart of lost mankind apart from the peace with God provided us in the Lord Jesus Christ. These people do not know that they are God's enemy. They do not understand that they and God are at odds. And until they come to know that and come to embrace that and believe that Christ was, as it were, the go-between, it will only be then that they can find the peace that God has for us through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a third thing, and this is for the believer in this room. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 15 says, speaking of Paul the Apostle, talking about the whole armor of God, he said, Your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. First off, understand that the gospel is a gospel of peace. It is peace with God. So when we go share with someone when Christ died on the cross, was buried, and rose again, according to the scriptures, sharing the gospel, we're sharing the gospel of peace. So mankind who embraces that gospel, believes it, can be at a right relationship with God the Father. He can have peace with God. The point about preparation of the gospel in the context is, I believe, goes back to a time when the Roman soldiers fought with their enemies. It is recorded that the Roman soldiers had spikes in the bottom of their sandals that they wore when they fought. The idea was to be swinging a sword and slipping all over the, the rock or the, the concrete or whatever it was you were fighting on. You wouldn't be able to take a stand and you would not be much of a, a warrior, a fighting warrior, if your feet were sliding out from under you. So what they did, they drove spikes in the bottoms of their sandals that they wore with the straps up onto their legs. They did that to give them security so they could fight at, from a stand. They could take a stand and they could fight until they had defeated the enemy. It would be very hard for any Christian to share the gospel with confidence. It would be very hard for any Christian to share the gospel with confidence who is not absolutely convinced that you and God are at peace. So until in your heart of hearts you know full well that you have been justified by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ 
and that you have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. And you're absolutely convinced of that. You're not going to be very confident to talk to people about their need of salvation when yours is in such question. For us who know Christ as Savior, the war with God is over. And as Paul wrote to the Ephesian church, Christ is our peace. Let me tell you something. When you have peace with God, then when you face all the things that life throws at you, what a joy it is to have the peace of God. Be able to go to a funeral and not sit there with a, the fear that you'll never get to see this loved one again who maybe we don't even think about salvation but grace, talk about it, consider it, whatever. But what a blessing it is when people know the Lord through Christ and know the Father in peace because of what Christ did for us. And we go to a funeral service and this person has trusted Christ as Savior and we have done the same and we know that someday, maybe soon, maybe several years, but somewhere out there, we're going to see our loved one again. What peace that brings. It's all because of what Christ did for us. So I say to you, do not doubt your salvation. Salvation has been provided in Christ and it's as secure as God is. God's word is at stake when it comes to the security of your salvation. There are a lot of folks in this world who are eternally insecure. Don't be one of them. Take God at his word. Embrace his truth. And if you have not, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior this morning. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for the Holy Scriptures. Thank you for the truths that they set before us and the assurances that they give us of our relationship with you, that it can be secure. It can be absolute. It's not something that's frivolous and, and fickle. It's not something that changes with the weather. It's not something that changes with our own physical feelings. It is something that is absolutely set in concrete, as it were. It is your established, unequivocal, unadulterated word. And this morning, we take heart in that, and we take confidence in it. And we take confidence that knowing that since we have trusted you as Savior and Lord, that there is absolutely nothing depending on us to keep our salvation. It is a state into which we have entered by simple childlike faith. And Father, today I pray for our friends here in the auditorium, members and friends alike, that you'll speak to our hearts. And any who are here who are uncertain and unsure of their own personal walk with thee, uncertain of their salvation in Jesus Christ, certainly that's a priority. That must be addressed. And help us to help them address it. Help them to come in simple childlike faith, believing on the Lord Jesus Christ and his finished work. And Father, I pray today that there are other needs that are attached to this issue. Pray that they'll be solved and settled by simply faith in your word. Those who ought to come for baptism, for church membership, for prayer, whatever the need is, help us to come to you with confidence, full confidence, that you'll meet those needs. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you stand with us, please, and turn in your hymn book, if you need one, to 282, Just As I Am. If God has spoken to your heart this morning about your walk with the Lord, about your salvation, we invite you to come and allow someone to take a Bible and you to one of our side rooms for counseling and share with you as we can God's Word so that you can know Christ for sure. And two, so that you can have the confidence that you need to have in that decision and in the Lord who gives it and provides it. So that you can go out and as the Roman soldier, you'll not slip and slide in your faith. You'll be confident of it. Be assured of it. And uh, the scriptures are quite clear that we who know the Lord are to sanctify the Lord God in our hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh us a reason of the hope that lieth within us. Now the fact of the matter is that won't happen by osmosis and with us just doing our thing. It is our cooperating with the Lord, and that's what every Christian must do. Once you've come to faith in Christ and you're at peace with God, then He expects you to grow in that grace and to grow in the knowledge of Him, to walk with Him, live for Him, and someday, if need be, die for Him, giving my everything for Him, but not jumping on the salvation bandwagon to see what I can get out of God or to see how far it'll carry me in this society. I read a piece this last week where the Democratic Party brought a man in to talk to the, the Democratic nominees on how to talk about God. Isn't that sad in America? I mean, if you're going to talk about God, fellas, if you're going to go out there and stump on these, uh, you know, you're going to get up and make these speeches, there are certain things you don't say about God. I want you to come to this meeting and we're going to teach all of you how to talk about God. The only way that would be necessary is if you didn't know Him, right? 
How would I know to speak the right phrases? For instance, the phrase that they urged them to use, this little piece said the, the phrase they urged these men to start using was God's green earth. Now tell me what that's going to do to him. They said that's safe. God's green earth. Pretty generic. Mean about anybody. Just use that. Don't, don't go too far. Why would you say that? Only one reason, because they don't know him. You don't know him. Those men couldn't stop and bow their heads and say, Our Father, which art in heaven. Now, I'm saying to you, my friend, there's a, a whole new relationship waiting for people when they come to understand that Christ paid the price so we could have peace with God. And today, I hope you have. If not, this invitation is directed to you. Let's sing together. 282, verse 1. You obey the Lord. Together, please. Just as I am without. God has spoken to your heart. Would you come? God has spoken to your heart. Would you come? God has spoken to your heart. Would you come? Thank you so much for your attention and your time, and thank you for being with us this morning. And I do encourage you to be back for the evening service. Brother Byron will be speaking in the service and bringing us up on the work the minister he and his wife are involved in. I want you to be here. Hope you will have a safe trip getting out of the parking lot into your homes. And do pray for the nursing home services this afternoon if you cannot be involved in them. Let's pray, and we shall go. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this day of the Lord, which we can come together and hear of your word in the Sunday school and the worship service. And as we anticipate the evening service, we look forward now to that opportunity once again to hear from you. We pray you'll bless Brother Byram as he opens the scriptures to us and speak and use him as he brings us up on the work, the ministry you've called him to. And Father, thank you for our guests in the services this morning. Please bless them for coming. And I pray you use your word, both in the Sunday school, the worship service, to advance them in their walk with you. Father, for any who are here this morning who have never believed on you as Savior, we pray for them. Our hearts go out to them. We want very much for them to know the joy of the Lord and to know the peace that comes in knowing thee and the peace that has been provided for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, thank you so much for a salvation, for the peace with God that Rick Henry does not have to maintenance and have to keep up, but a salvation that's been given to me in complete payment made for it, and it is mine by simple childlike faith. And, Father, thank you that with that comes the absolute assurance that when I die, I'll enter into your presence. I thank you for that, and thank you for the Bible that teaches it so succinctly. We ask you now to bless this assembly as we leave. Give safety out of the parking lot, onto the roads, and into the homes. And have your will in each of our lives. And help us now to become doers of the word who know the truth. Help us to take it to heart and live by it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. May the Lord bless you and keep you until we meet again. You're dismissed. Thank uh you. -huh.